Welcome to the Martinskirk Podcast, a publication of sermons and lessons from Trinity Reformed Church of Martinsburg. Trinity Reformed exists to declare the victory of Jesus Christ through worship and practice to the ends of the earth. To learn more about our congregation, visit martinskirk.com. Now covenants, if you know anything about covenants in the Bible, you'll know that covenants are new beginnings. They form new relationships. They mark new eras. They make new nations. And even form new worlds, as our Lord says. God made a covenant with Adam in the garden. But when Adam fell in sin, he made a new promise. A new covenant. When the world broke covenant with God through their unbridled wickedness, God made a new covenant with Noah and remade the world with a new people marked by that new covenant. This theme goes on and on throughout the Old Testament. Man's unfaithfulness and then God's mercy. And the difference between his covenants and ours, though, is that he alone can set the stipulations and he never fails to fulfill his promises. Not, our covenants tend to, tend to dissolve over time. But all of these new mercies were not new in the sense that we think today. God wasn't making up new things. He wasn't making up new things arbitrarily. He wasn't trying completely new plans because he couldn't figure out what would work on us. Right? We keep falling and falling over and over again. He's not, he's not going to plan B and C and D and on and on and on. No, a new covenant does not mean a novel covenant. A new covenant means a better covenant. A better covenant. The covenant made with Adam is not discarded, but improved upon. You can think of the various covenants with Israel as stacking up upon one another, rather than replacing each other. R.C. Sproul has a really good example of their books that are stacked upon each other, and Christ fulfills them all. These are the covenants of God. So you can think of them stacking upon one another and are fulfilled in Christ. And God, this is the reason, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So his promises with his people are not thrown away, but made complete and fulfilled. And these covenants that have built up over time meet their fulfillment again in the person of Jesus Christ. So with the coming of Christ means the completion of the old covenants. The prophet Jeremiah says in Jeremiah chapter 31, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sins I will remember no more. Amen. Now if you notice, these things are not new to Israel. And yet it is a new and greater covenant because their sins will be cast out forever. The Lord promised that he would make a new world, a better covenant with Israel, in which the law of God, which was part of his covenant, would be written on their hearts. The least and the greatest would know him. And he will forever forgive their sins. So all the covenants of the old are leading up to this one. And this is precisely the message behind the first miracle of Christ in Cana. 
It doesn't seem that way right now, but as we move along, I hope you'll see. Jesus is inaugurating a new and better covenant in his own blood. He has come to recreate the world through his cross. His blood cleanses us of our sins. His cup overflows with goodness and blessing. And he offers this new glorious life freely to all those who trust in him. Now, if you'll remember from our series through St. John's epistles, uh, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, John loves to use numbers. He loves to use numbers and images and the writing style to shape our understanding of the, uh, the, the thing that he's trying to portray. And John's gospel is packed with this sort of clue. Right? These, rabbit, these rabbit trails that you can go down, these clues that are marking the true meaning behind these particular events. And at the beginning of John chapter 2, we can see that he gives us a day count. He says, on the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. Now what's interesting about this is that we can trace the days back to the first day of John's gospel. We can trace it all the way back to the first day in John's gospel, which is the baptism of Jesus, the first day of Christ's ministry. And then we can trace those days all the way to Cana which is a total of seven days. And each of these days mentioned by John roughly correspond to the days of creation in Genesis chapter 1. You can notice the same themes. The the Holy Spirit hovers over the unformed waters on day one, just as the Holy Spirit descends upon Christ in his baptism. The Word of God divides the waters above from the waters below. And then we see in the second day of Jesus' ministry, John's baptism is differentiated between Jesus' baptism. Two waters are separated. Right? We have earthly water of John's baptism and the heavenly waters of the Spirit. Day three is the separation of land and sea. In the third day of Christ's ministry, we see the calling of Simon, son of Jonah, a prophet of the sea. Who, give, who is given the name Cephas, which means stone, sea, and land. The fourth day of creation is the making of vines and trees that bear fruit. While in Jesus' fourth day of ministry, he calls Nathaniel, whom he saw under the fig tree. John seems to skip day five and six in his gospel, and he jumps straight to day seven. This is the wedding at Cana. But John doesn't use numbers to make us think about the creation account at this, uh, at this wedding in Cana. He also uses similar language as creation. So not just the days, but also similar language. On day six, God creates man and woman. And he creates woman from man as a helper for him. So she is created in union to him. There's a marriage in the creation of woman. Her creation is also a wedding. On the seventh day, the day of God's rest, they are placed in the Garden of Eden, where the fruitful trees of life and knowledge are located, and where the rivers of water have their origin. So we have the same components here in this wedding at Cana, man, woman, wedding, water, and wine, the fruit of the vine. Now one interesting fact about the Gospel of John is that it never mentions Jesus' mother by name. The name Mary is never mentioned in reference to Jesus' mother in the Gospel of John, the entire Gospel. She is either the mother of Jesus, or in this case, at the wedding of Cana, she is woman. 
Now, we often think of woman as an insulting title. If we were to do that today, it would be rude, right? If you called your mother woman today, I'm sure it wouldn't be taken well. But in the ancient world, this word was actually, uh, it could be used either way. And most often it was used um, respectfully as a sort of respectful title to give to someone. A callback to the first woman and first mother. And this is certainly the case with Jesus. Jesus is sinless. He's not insulting and being rude to his mother. This is certainly intent here is to call us back to the first woman, the first mother in the garden. But the scene at Cana is much different than the scene of the garden. In the garden, a woman led Adam to the first sin and to the first evil act in his life. At Cana, the woman leads Jesus, the second Adam, to his first glorious work in his ministry. Already we can see the difference in this man, Jesus Christ. Rather than a curse, he brings glory and blessing to his people. And this glorious blessing comes through water and wine. Water and wine. Now when the wedding party, which could have lasted probably a whole week, they did weddings a little bit different in the ancient world, it would have been about a week long of celebrations, so they had to have a lot of wine to be able to provide for a lot of people for seven days. And so they'd they'd run out of wine, probably uh, ahead of schedule, right? It was probably either the first day or the third day of the wedding. So that's, that's kind of troubling. They're out of wine. So Mary makes Jesus aware of this issue. She says, there's no wine, right? There's no wine. And Jesus responds, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, this seems, again, quite rude and unnecessary, right? She's just saying, there's no wine. There's no wine. And he says, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, it can be inferred by Mary's words that she would be quite worried. These are probably cousins. She's probably worried about helping with hospitality and making sure the party continues uh, throughout the week. So she's probably expressing concern to her son. Or she could be asking him to perform a miracle. And Jesus responds the way he does for two reasons. He responds the way he does to Mary for two reasons. First, he wants to communicate to his mother that he is a guest at the wedding and not the host. He's not in charge of these things. This is not his wedding. He will be the host of a a wedding feast at a future date. A host that offers his own body and blood as bread and wine, and his plate and cup are never empty. But that hour has not yet come. And the second reason is, again, his hour has not yet come. And this refers to a truer meaning behind the wine and the celebrations. The cross. That is the hour that is to come. The cross on which his blood is spilled for the forgiveness of sins and is given to his disciples as the cup of a new and better covenant. But even though he was not the host, and his hour had not yet come, he chose to bless this wedding with an abundance of wine to manifest his glory, as John says, and strengthen the faith of his disciples. So he told the servants to use six water pots that were available, which held, um, as this translation said, about 20 to 30 gallons each. It's a lot of water. And these water, these water pots were actually commonplace in ancient Israel because of the various washings and baptisms required by the law of God. 
Israel was a holy nation, right? So that meant a nation that was set apart to worship God. And to worship God, you have to be clean. So Israel had to be clean. So they would have water pots at these various locations. Priests were washed before an ordination, uh, before their service in the temple. Worshippers were washed when they touched something dead, had a recent health issue, or maybe even to prepare for a festival, as we see here in Canaan. So if you were unclean, you were cut off from the worship life of Israel. So for this reason, the washings were commonplace. So they need lots of water. They need, them, uh, they need these various water pots at various locations so that they would be clean and be able to worship the Lord. So it would be natural to have these large stone basins for these washings at weddings and other events. And Jesus takes these stone vessels, which, as we know, the law was written on stone as well. And he filled them with water, probably really dirty water, considering the use of the basins. If you wash your hands all the time or wash your face, especially in a dusty, uh, dusty location, these aren't, this water's not going to be good. It's going to be gross. And then he turned this water into wine. And he sent that wine to the master of the feast to taste it. And the master calls the bridegroom over to him, and he says, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. But you have kept the good wine until now. Now notice that the master, the master probably, uh, and probably the bridegroom at that moment, had no idea where this wine had come from. They had no idea where it came from. And the bridegroom is actually praised for the works of Christ and not Christ himself. And through the gracious works of Christ, the bridegroom is blessed. Now the washings of the old covenant, which made one temporarily clean before God and able to approach him in worship, were inferior to this new cleansing to come in the new covenant. Our God saved the best for last. The old waters of the law are transformed to the blood of the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ. This is what this miracle points us to. As Zechariah 13 prophesies, In that day a fountain shall be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem, for sin and for uncleanness. Zechariah 13.1 So Jesus fulfills the law in his death and invites his people into a new creation and a new life in him. And in this miracle... At Cana, Jesus shows us that he is he who came by water and by blood. Not only by water, as John says, but by water and by blood. The water was pointing to the truer washing we have in Jesus Christ. The washing away of the sins of, of, of mankind by the blood of Jesus so that we might be clean in the sight of God forever. And this idea of wine and blood is not foreign to the Bible either. I'm not just making this up. This is a common theme throughout the Old Covenant. One of their most popular songs, which was the Song of Moses, makes this connection between wine and blood. Moses says, And you drank wine, the blood of grapes. The blood of grapes. If you remember the altars of the Old Testament tabernacle, they were sprinkled not only with blood, but also with wine. And this is because blood brings peace between God and man, just as wine brings peace to the body. Wine was a reminder of what blood accomplished. 
The blood of Christ is an eternal sign of the promise of peace made by God to his son and in his son to us as well. So in Christ, all who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. For he himself is our peace, as Ephesians 4 says. Now, a friend recently pointed to me, and I had to, had to bring this up as well when we're talking about blood and wine and peace and things of that nature. A friend pointed me to Proverbs 31.6, which says, Give strong drink to him who is perishing, and wine to those who are bitter of heart. Strong drink to him who is perishing, and wine to those bitter of heart. Now, Proverbs often have the same audience in mind. This person who is perishing and who is bitter in heart is probably the same person. So they receive strong drink and wine. Now, we know the Jews of the first century are very bitter in heart, like the bitter springs of Morah. And Jesus is the branch that turns that water sweet. Israel is under a covenant that is perishing away. It is vanishing. And the Lord gives them wine as his first miracle. The coming of Christ means a new way of life free from the wrath of God and the guilt of sin. He is Israel's forgiveness and salvation. So it makes sense that his first miracle would point to this old world fading away. He's giving the bitter in heart wine to drink. He's giving those who are perishing strong drink. So it makes sense that his first miracle would be water to wine. And as Hebrews tells us, in that he says a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So that old covenant is vanishing away and a new covenant in Christ's blood is coming. His blood is wine for the old world. And he is not stingy with his blood either. Remember, 20 to 30 gallons of wine in each pot. Jesus did not turn one water pot of water into wine, nor did he turn three water pots. He turned six. Dozens and dozens of gallons of the choicest wine was given as a gift to the host, the bridegroom, and to everyone in attendance. He does not just bless his people. He blesses them above and beyond anything they anticipate. And he does this so that his glory might be manifested and our faith might be strengthened. The graces and mercies of God shown to us in Christ Jesus, our Lord, are more abundant and numerous than we even dare to guess. Our cup overflows. And this points us ultimately to our hope. The wedding at Cana, the first miracle of our Lord's earthly ministry, points us to a final wedding day. Cleansed by the blood of Jesus, the church will be presented to her Lord and husband in fine linen, clean and bright, to sit at a marriage feast filled with peace and gladness, to give him all glory and all honor and all dominion. The glory that he has bestowed upon his people we will return with gratitude to him, our Lord and husband, who is the only one who is due the honor. And even now we get a taste of this final wedding day. We get a taste of this final wedding day, even now. We talked a little bit this morning in Sunday school about the ascension of Jesus and how it corresponds to our worship, how we ascend in the spirit uh, into the presence of God. 
Even now, we get a taste of this wedding feast, this final day. In the Lord's Supper, we get to taste of this eschatological glory, his bread and body for our life and health, his wine and blood for our peace and our gladness. And even in this small taste of that heavenly reality, the graces and mercies of God shown to us in Christ overflow our cups. They overflow our cups. His grace and His mercy overflows those little cups that you have. It is far, far more than that little shot of wine that you get in the Lord's Supper. So how must we then live in light of this? This is all really cool, right? You get all these images that we see in this wedding at Cana. But how are we to live in light of this truth? What does this mean for our lives? How are we to walk out of these doors today? Well, we can turn to Jesus' mother. Mary's first thought when the joy of the party was fading away, when there was no wine left, was to go to Jesus for the remedy. Now, it could have been that she was complaining or worrying, and this probably could have been the case. But she did not go to the master of the feast, who is the organizer. She did not go to the bridegroom and trouble him with this worry. Instead, she went to Christ. Now, this seems really simple and kind of elementary, but what does this mean for us? What are we to do? Where are we to go when our joy runs thin? Where are we to go when our worries catch up to us? To Jesus Christ, our Lord. And where is our, Lord's, where is our Lord found? Where is He? Where is He present? He's present in the fellowship of believers, in prayer, in His Word, and in his appointed means that he has given us. He does not desire to withhold his gifts and graces. But we will not experience those gifts and graces if we do not believe him to be the source of all those gifts and graces. If we do not believe that he truly is the source of all those gifts, and if we do not seek him in our times of need and trouble, we will not receive them. We have to live by faith. But the forgiveness found in the cleansing blood of Christ and in the rich gifts and joys accompanying that grace is not for us to be forgiven and left alone. Right? Jesus doesn't leave us alone. He doesn't just forgive us and, and tell us to go on our way either. Jesus calls us into a new life and community with other believers to share that grace with. We share that grace with one another. That wine was shared with one another. It was in the community of believers. As Christ forgives us, we forgive one another. There are two ways to share the forgiveness of Christ with one another. And it's through, through doing that, through actually actively forgiving one another. That's one way to share in the forgiveness of Christ. But it's also through Sharing in the joy of that forgiveness together. So it's not just about forgiving one another. That's how we participate in the forgiveness of Christ given to us. But it's also about sharing in the joy of that forgiveness with one another. So when someone has offended you, even if they did not ask for your forgiveness, you must be willing and ready to have that forgiveness waiting for them. As one pastor in our denomination says, it has to be gift-wrapped. Right on the doorstep, ready for them anytime they seek it. 
That is our stance of forgiveness. Your cup should overflow with forgiveness for your brother or sister. And that forgiveness should lead you all, all of us, and even those who aren't involved in those particular disputes, it should lead all of us to a mutual joy. A mutual joy. And one way to test if you've truly forgiven your brother is to throw a party for him, right? Invite him over. Share gifts with him. Have dinner with him. Invite them into your joy. If you cannot do that, if you are still holding back, you've only offered water, not wine. A temporary washing, not the real thing. True forgiveness leads to true forgiveness, which leads to a new life of joy and communion with Christ and one another. And this is what the worship of God's people is supposed to train us in. It's a wedding rehearsal. What we're doing here is a wedding rehearsal, preparing us for the day when we will meet the bridegroom face to face. He has washed our clothes with his own blood, making our robes as white as snow. He has given us his word to direct us in the way of peace, and he will, in just a few minutes, seat us at his table to feed us and give us the best of all gifts. His body for our life and his blood for our peace and rest. And this is what this wedding at Cana shows us. That our Lord Jesus has inaugurated a new and better covenant in his blood. And that this new covenant promises a new world in which the law of God is poured out into our hearts. Our sins are truly and finally forgiven. And the peace of Christ is given in abundance to all who believe in him. This is what a new and better covenant means. The promises of forgiveness and richness in the life of Christ. A new world in which the blessings of Jesus overflow. How do we partake, how do we partake of that newness and that blessing? How do we follow in the footsteps of Christ? How do we take and drink of the forgiveness of Christ in his blood and offer that forgiveness to one another? Those are the questions that you need to ask yourself this week. How can I do that in my own life? How can I partake of the joy of Christ? Well, we know that only comes through the blood of Jesus. And this new blood gives us a new world and a new life to live in, if we are willing to follow him. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.